to identify the strengths of the culture you're in. Leverage those strengths, identify the weaknesses, and come up with mitigating strategies for the weaknesses. The myth that if you're in government, can't work quickly, you can't get things done quickly, is a myth. We were deploying more applications for remote access than any other commercial operation that I've ever been part of. Desire to be someone you're not is a source of pain. People have a sixth sense about authenticity. They can tell somehow that you're faking it, and that erodes trust, and that erodes some of the most basic human connections we can make with people. I spent a lot of time trying to learn and connect and understand people at a deeper level, and the better I was at connecting with the people, the better I did. Look for that next opportunity where you create value and where you can have a passion, even if it's not on whatever career path you set out for yourself. This is Siana TV. My name is Hendrik Deckers. I'm here today with Stuart McGuigan, who is the former Chief Information Officer of the Department of State from his hometown in Providence, Rhode Island. A very warm welcome, Stuart. Thank you, I'm thrilled to be here. Stuart, you have degrees from Fairfield University and Yale. You started your career as a researcher at Honeywell, and you held the senior IT leadership and CIO positions at Merck, Medco Health Solutions, Liberty, Liberty Mutual Group, CVS Caremark, and Johnson & Johnson. Your last position was as CIO of the US Department of State. For those of us outside of the US, that's basically the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from, uh, from the US. So Stuart, Tell us a little bit more about yourself. What's your background and how did you arrive in these positions as CIO? I'll start with how I arrived in these positions and I can say almost purely accidentally. Uh, <laughs> you know, I can tell you a story that makes my career sound like it was very pur purposeful and planned, mm -hmm. but really uh, it, it happened quite by accident. Uh, when I was in graduate school and at Honeywell, I was fascinated by what, how people think, how they reason. And so I was studying artificial intelligence and cognitive science, uh, first at Yale uh, as part of the graduate program, and then at Honeywell, uh, sponsored by government programs. And I became more and more interested in the mechanisms people use to reason, how they get persuaded, uh, and actually a little too fascinated, not enough time finishing my dissertation. Uh, luckily, I met my future wife and she was very interested in uh, my having maybe longer term career plans. And so as I looked around, uh, we just about hit the beginning of the AI winter in those days. So there weren't a lot of mm -hmm. AI jobs, yep. but there were jobs for people who could do statistical modeling. And so that's how I ended up at Merck in marketing, not in IT, doing predictive analytics uh, and did a five-year career in marketing, including product management. The way I got to be a mm -hmm. CIO is, uh, and this explains a lot of my personality, is that I, I complained a little too often and a little too loudly about the quality <laughs> of the data, the availability of the data, the accessibility of the tools, and like all good companies, uh, when someone makes a, a bit of noise, uh, they look and say, how about you be in charge of fixing IT? So I developed the first IT strategic plan for Merck. Uh, I was initially not very happy with that because I love doing the analytics. 
But after a very short period of time, I saw what tremendous leverage there was in better uniting business purpose, business strategy and objectives to IT strategy. And after a couple of years, I thought, well, we've solved that problem. We know how to do that. And honestly, I think I've spent the next 20 something years of my career trying to make that true. <laughs> and, and I mean, you spend a lot of time in, in, in pharma and healthcare. Mm -hmm. That's a great environment to be working in, right? Oh, it is. It's a very data-driven environment. It's a very mm -hmm. analytical environment. It's a very objective environment. Uh, people look at the, the cold light of data every day to determine whether what we're doing is improving people's lives or not. And that's the filter mm -hmm. on our activities. Are we improving patient care? Are we improving patient yep. quality of life? And to be tied to that purpose is a tremendous source of motivation for really everyone in a pharmaceutical company, including IT. Yeah. And so your last position in, in pharma healthcare was at uh, CIOs Johnson & Johnson. Yes. And then in 2019, you went to the Department of State. So that's pretty important career sh shift, no? Yeah, I'd, I'd been at Johnson & Johnson for seven years, which is a long time for a CIO. Mm -hmm. And uh, my direct uh, boss had just retired in October. And I got a call in November, would I be interested in uh, helping out at the Department of State? And I'd had relatives mm -hmm. who had served in government and uh, international jobs. So, I, you know, I, I knew about the government to a, to, a, to a small degree. But I came down to Washington and met with leadership, including the secretary at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said, we'd like you to come here to build up the capabilities of the Department of State to serve the people of the U.S., to support its diplomatic mission, to operate more efficiently, mm -hmm. to better use taxpayer dollars. And regardless of who's secretary after him, the Department mm -hmm. of State will run better. So it's very much a non-political position, very much a moment in time to invest in infrastructure. Okay, so you started there 2019, correct? Mm -hmm. But it's a huge organization. Yes. It's 80,000 people, uh, I mean, crews or teams around the globe. Describe a little bit the business of, of the DOS. So the, the business is to maintain relationships with virtually every country in the world. And although there are 80,000 mm -hmm. people in the U.S. and globally, uh, we're, they're in 190 countries. And so the wow. teams are kind of small and they can be very small depending on what country they're in. So part of the culture mm -hmm. is uh, the ability to multitask, the ability to mm -hmm. solve whatever problem needs solving. And I, I learned to really admire uh, the Foreign Service uh, individuals around the world, particularly in IT, the civil service staff who supported them. But they operate in every environment in the world, by definition. They, uh, they have the most complexity. You could be uh, in, in Brussels uh, with all the infrastructure in the world, uh, working and supporting yep. NATO. You could be in countries in Africa where internet connectivity can't be taken for granted. And then virtually everything yep. in between. So it really defined an environment where you couldn't say one size fits all. And so that was part of the yep. art and science of marrying the mission, the many missions of the Department of State to the technology strategy. Okay. So, so to that end, it was comparable with Johnson & Johnson also being a global company around the world. And then Department of State is also, I mean, same size, maybe same budget almost. 
on, 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 on IT. But I can imagine that the culture was a bit different. I mean, an, an, a commercial organization, a government organization. How do you compare that? So I, I, everyone I met with before I joined said that I was going to be astounded by the differences of working mm -hmm. in a company like Johnson & Johnson and working for the Department of State. But I'd say there are more similarities than differences. Okay. And I actually learned after I arrived that the, uh, the leadership of the Department of State had met with the CEO of Johnson & Johnson to discuss how to develop strategy and en enhance employee engagement in a multinational, multi-purpose organization that is by definition fairly decentralized. So I actually found yep. more similarities than differences, particularly mm -hmm. in the motivation of the people that, who are very purpose-driven. Now, at the Department of State, we didn't measure our results based on you know, net profit. That wasn't one of the measures, but just about everything else uh, was very similar. Are we uh, achieving our mission? Are we helping countries uh, become more democratic and independent? With Johnson & Johnson and B, are we helping hospital systems take care of patients in a better way? So certainly the topic mm -hmm. was different, but the feeling, the tone, the challenges had as many similarities as differences. Okay. Now let's talk about the transformation, the changes that you have implemented there. What, what was the first things that you've done, let's say year one in the job? What was, the, what was your focus uh, year one? Yeah, so fortunately we had really enormous support in, in budget and from leadership and really virtually every leader in the Department of State. And the thing that mm -hmm. I heard over and over again is that we, the department hadn't really made a significant investment since Colin Powell which is a, a long time ago. And he was the one who brought the internet to the Department of State. So there was uh, an appetite for improved capabilities. Uh, right. The first thing we did is we made sure that we had uh, security consistently applied across all networks and everything we did. And so moving mm -hmm. to multi-factor authentication consistently. I think there was a word I would emphasize, it's consistent and thorough. Uh, we even got to a point where we said, if you're not using the right authentication, you're gonna be off the network. And there was a bit of panic within the department. They thought there'd mm -hmm. be a firestorm of complaints from people around the world. And I can tell you there wasn't. You know, we had communicated the purpose, we got people to secure access, and then we moved them to cloud. And we said, wherever you are, you can both work on your device, you can work on your iPad, but you can also synchronize with global assets and resources in a secure manner and take advantage of that. So rolling out the yep. ability to collaborate using technology across time zones, across geographies, was a critical capability that we brought to the department. And we had just about mm -hmm. wrapped up giving virtually every employee, every staff member access to the cloud when COVID hit for the second year. So you were pretty well prepared to uh, when COVID hit you, right? Well, we had the plumbing in place. So we had mm -hmm. secure authentication from outside of our offices, our embassies and our consulates. Uh, we had access to cloud resources, but there are literally, literally hundreds of applications that have been built over decades that were built without mm -hmm. a thought that they would ever be accessed outside of the physical networks of the State Department. Uh, we never even had as many as 10% of our workforce working remotely, and we needed to support almost everybody working remotely. 
So without spending a lot of time debating methodology, we set up essentially a DevOps shop where every day mm -hmm. our IT colleagues looked at applications that were needed for each functional bureau to get its work done at all and securely mm -hmm. enable them to be accessed remotely. And the thing about a daily cadence is it creates the right sense of urgency, but also allows mm -hmm. you the next day, if something doesn't work, you can say, whoops, that didn't work, let me fix it today. When you do a one-year project and something doesn't work, there's a lot of emotion around it. But with an agile or a DevOps kind of approach to uh, enabling these applications, people could learn, they could continuously improve, improve the process that we employ to get that access. And I would say at our height, we were deploying more applications for remote access than any other commercial operation that I've ever been part of. We were more productive, more agile, uh, and more continuously improving our process than just about any organization. Yep. So the myth that if you're in government, you're not work, you can't work quickly, you can't get things done quickly, is a myth. And if you set things up correctly and you have the right burning platform, which of course COVID was, you can get a lot done in a very short period of time. So nothing as good as a crisis to, and, and, and a burning platform to, to get things done and, and to, to change a culture also. So let's talk a little bit about, a little bit more about culture. Uh, and, and so you said that, um, I mean, you implemented DevOps, you implemented collaboration. How, how do you do that? I mean, COVID and, and the crisis helped, but what is necessary to do, uh, to do that? So, you know, I, I, I think I learned the hard way that, um, mm -hmm. You can't change culture. I think like any other change okay. agent, I would say we have to change culture. We, you know, we have to be more agile. But instead of what I've learned is to identify the strengths of the culture you're in, leverage those okay. strengths, identify the weaknesses, and come up with mitigating strategies for the weaknesses. And I think it's never okay. more stark than in the State Department, a 230-year-old organization you know, someone coming in for a couple of years as the CIO is not going to change their culture. But instead, mm -hmm. what we did is we aligned the way we were working with the culture of the State Department, which is very mission driven. It, it, it's very short term driven because you think about foreign policy and foreign affairs, things come up and you have to respond quickly. Yes, you have long term strategies. You have a lot of analysis. But particularly the IT group is very used to responding to rapidly emerging or developing situations, whether it's an evacuation, okay. it's, it's uh, mm -hmm. uh, bringing a new embassy up online. And so we connected to those things that worked well at the State Department already and then mm -hmm. enhanced the things that were a bit of a challenge. So it's a decentralized organization, many bureaus. We operated within the bureaus, but we made everything transparent. If you were uh, operating in anti-narcotics and you had a great new tool for doing analytics, you could go off and, and develop that tool. We weren't going to stop you. Matter of fact, we were going to help accelerate your progress. But then the capabilities that you had developed are now available to every other bureau that might have a similar mission. And so what I think we created in the transparency by creating an overall IT council was visibility mm -hmm. into the natural occurring innovation that a decentralized organization has. 
it, it has more mm -hmm. innovation, at least in potential, than any centralized or monolithically managed organization. And that's something that is worth leveraging. Okay. So we talked about culture and, and so you, you work with the strengths that are there. Let's talk a bit about process, the, the process of, of innovation, the, the process of transformation. And you talked about DevOps. How, I mean, how do you implement that in, 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 a, in, in, the, in an environment, the government environment? Well, as you said, it helped to have a crisis. So uh, we, we didn't have to deal with a lot of the issues you deal with in IT. We didn't have to debate mm -hmm. what was important or not. Uh, we could implement the concept of a minimum viable product because people mm -hmm. knew that yeah. getting things online was existential. You couldn't run your bureau. Yeah. And so we didn't have a lot of debates about additional features and functions. We got into what is the basic capability you need to get back online and running, and then we're mm -hmm. gonna implement that, and then we're gonna go help another bureau. And we'll circle back and put in more essential capabilities, but we're gonna have that concept that is so hard to bring to uh, corporate America, the concept of the MVP, the concept of let's deploy quickly, securely, but quickly, and let's learn and iterate as opposed to spending a lot of time on debate and, and analysis. And that worked very well in terms of unleashing innovation across the department. Uh, at one point when we had over 90% of FTEs working remotely, including foreign nationals, not just mm -hmm. uh, US citizens, we did a survey and said, how do you like working remotely? And more than half of the people said they were as productive or more productive than in the office, which is sort of an astounding statistic. That, is, that happened at least in part because we kept iterating and getting better. We didn't do these monolithic no. projects. We did very short sprints. We didn't spend a lot of time debating about what to call it. We set up squads, agile teams, gave them the resources we need, gave them more resources when we got it wrong, and allowed them to mm -hmm. get better on their own, and, and they just took off. And then my job as the leader was to make sure that they didn't get called to too many status updates, that their work didn't get interrupted. And I became, and my principal deputy CIO became the chief spokespeople for progress against COVID, and we did every update ourselves. And just doing that okay. signaled to the organization below us that they, were, they had air cover. They were gonna be protected. Uh, we were gonna represent them and get the resources that we need. And if something went wrong, no big deal. We'll fix it tomorrow. We talked about culture, we talked about process. Let's also talk a bit about technology. I mean, we love talking about technology yeah, yeah. as well, of course. So, so in, in your big move to the cloud, what, what are the major platforms that, you, uh, that you're using there today? So the, the first thing we did is we thought about what does good look like? And so we didn't start mm -hmm. with the target cloud platform. We started out with what do we want to accomplish? Uh, what we wanted was the ability to provision infrastructure capability as quickly as possible. And not just do it quickly, but do it compliantly with whatever regulations, might be privacy regulations at Johnson & Johnson, it's FDA regulations, it's HIPAA regulations, mm -hmm. and to build in the security capabilities that we want as part of every instance of infrastructure that we had. So we... we move to a software-defined infrastructure. And this was the magic, and this was the key. Uh, my ability to look into the auditor's eyes and say, we're gonna be more secure. We're gonna be 100% compliant in infrastructure. Mm -hmm. We're never gonna fail another infrastructure FDA audit again 
for the new cloud infrastructure because software executes perfectly every time. And if we build in the right rules in provisioning, every time we spin up a new cloud instance, it has all the features. Mm -hmm. Nobody fat fingers a key. Nobody forgets to turn over a page in the checklist and, and not execute. And so because we made it impossible to stand up a cloud server without also putting in security, without also creating the artifacts that the auditors could find, we became 100% compliant. So that got the people who were worried about what we're doing relaxed. On the business side, it took so long to give, give a new development team the tools they needed to get started that there was a fair amount of discontent. And by showing that once we deployed the right tools, if you identified a product owner, we could give you an agile team within a few days. And then once that agile team is in place, you could go out to lunch and request a development environment. And by the time you got back to the office, it would be there because it operated at the speed of software, not the speed of people. And that was a key part of the transformation. Yep. Now, by having that software-defined infrastructure, we could point it at our own version of cloud. We could point it at AWS. We could point it at Azure. And so we kept our independence from being locked in too deeply to any one competitor. And, and we kept them yep. competing by bringing new features and functions to what we did because tomorrow we might provision somebody else uh, if we weren't happy with the service or the capabilities we were getting. So it wasn't just the cloud, it was the way that we went about it that I think really was transformative. You said you had a strategy to make sure that you're not uh, bound to one cloud provider. What, what, what's, the, what's the implementation of that? So really needed a, a provisioning layer, uh, really needed something mm -hmm. like OpenShift or, or even using a Kubernetes as a platform that gave us a layer of insulation from any one particular implementation of cloud. Yep. And although there are a small number of dominant players, it's good to keep them competing with each other and competing uh, with your businesses. And being part of the you know, entire open source community protected by the appropriate commercialization is a wonderful strategy uh, for staying mm -hmm. on the cutting edge of technology capability. So Stuart, I mean, the Department of State, I mean, you, you, they, they work in friendly countries and, and, and in less friendly countries. So, I mean, this is the material where spy movies are made uh, from. And, and that's the kind of environment um, that Department of State is in. So, so security must be key. How, how do you compare, how do you implement security uh, and, and work with cybersecurity? How do you compare that with, with the, the big corporates that you were in before? Yeah, so we, we're solving for a different set mm -hmm. of problems. Uh, at Johnson & Johnson, I'd say the most important thing to protect was intellectual property and to the extent that there was any identifiable data privacy. Yep. Uh, and those are paramount. And any, any investment we needed to make to secure that data, uh, to protect against unauthorized access, uh, we made. And I would ask uh, my CISO, and I would have her also speak to the audit committee of the board and, and say, was there ever a moment in the last year where we didn't do what we needed to do because of budget? And she could answer truthfully, oh. no. We never failed to do what we needed to do to protect the company uh, because of the, the investment requ required. And we actually took the IT spend 
out of, for security, out of the normal IT spend and said, this is sacrosanct. Okay. Uh, and I can tell you the board support was tremendous. The uh, executive support was tremendous. The only question I got was, are we spending <laughs> enough? And are we doing things fast enough? Which is a wonderful question mm -hmm. to have. It's a very different kind of question to have than you normally get as a CIO. At the Department of State, you're part of a cybersecurity uh, community that has among the most sophisticated and knowledgeable practitioners mm -hmm. in the world. And there's a lot that gets done that we wouldn't be talking about right now appropriately. But I can tell you it is a, a first and foremost consideration in everything that's done is protecting the information and the assets uh, of the Department of State wherever you operate. And I think, you know, we are in a pretty good position uh, generally, although it's not the thing to be overly confident about. A, a healthy paranoia is the only good posture yeah. with cybersecurity. Uh, and it's not until we see the development of quantum computing that I think we, we get to a new level of risk and concern. And so there's a fair amount of work on quantum resistant encryption. And so it's a constantly escalating battle. Uh, it's, it's something you have to pay constant attention to and continually raise your game. And part of it is as much the people and the behavior and making sure they're educated. Yep. Uh, phishing is an obvious one. Um, you know, people can inadvertently bring in uh, a ransomware attack uh, if they don't have the proper behavior. So the human component requires ever more attention uh, not just the technology. Okay. Component. Now, your heart, your passion from the beginning of your career was with artificial intelligence, with analytics and so on. So, so I mean, we're now many, many years later. How do you use artificial intelligence and modeling in, in, a, in a government environment, in a Department of State environment? In, in many ways, I think the Department of State is ideally suited for machine learning models, predictive analytics, uh, you know, healthcare is a much tougher environment for that because if you think about a system that's recently been developed to diagnose lung cancer from mm -hmm. x-rays, your level of precision has to be pretty yeah. darn high, right? You really can't afford to miss a potential cancer and you can't overdiagnose either because you burden the healthcare system. Uh, in the Department of State, often it suffices to get a little bit of a warning that something may occur. Uh, one of my favorite modeling exercises was um, creating a predictive model that predicted the timing and the degree of population migration in certain parts of the world. And one of the uh, factors in the predictive model was the price of okay. goats. And it turns out that when the price of goats goes down too fast, it means that there's a group of people who are, need to move and they're liquidating their assets, which suppresses the value of goats in the marketplace. And not only can you mm -hmm. know that and know that something's happening in a part of the world, you can begin to quantify how big a drop in price of yep. goats. How, you know, how fast do you think people are going to move? And the ability to signal what might happen, even at the 70, 80% likelihood, is tremendously valuable in foreign policy because it allows you to focus on a smaller number of scenarios 
in preparing foreign policy and your response. So the Center for Analytics of the Department of State, which is a great partner to IT, has been developing uh, profoundly. They just released actually this week the first overall data strategy for the entire department, not just uh, individual mm -hmm. bureaus. And so they're making the investment in data, data infrastructure, data science and analytics that allow us to stay a little bit ahead of the game and things that emerge around the world that we need to be concerned okay. with. Now, Department of State operating in 190 different countries at completely different levels of IT maturity and, and, and so on and so on. So how do you build a model? How do you build an IT operating model to support so many different types of clients? We actually use data science for that <laughs> as well and uh, worked with our partners. Uh, we put as inputs all the different embassies and consulates, all the different missions. You know, some are heavy anti-narcotics, some are heavy supporting uh, agricultural reform. There's a different constellation of mm -hmm. missions at almost, in almost every country. So we looked at what they're trying to do. We mapped that to the systems that they need to use and the data we need to access. And we did a cluster analysis essentially and came up with mission clusters. And we said, these embassies need this equipment. It's not 190 different flavors of IT, but it's not one flavor. It's more like 10 or 12 different flavors. And by using machine learning and analytics, we were able to systematically incorporate the requirements of every embassy and give them a target solution that they felt had been custom crafted yep. for them because it met all their needs. And so we built this model to support getting both the leverage of the scale of the State Department, so nine or 10 different models, not 190, but not over-indexing on standardization so that we lost some of the capabilities that are so necessary for the efficient running of foreign policy and the efficient running of the embassies. And so is that balance. And our uh, sponsors, our business sponsors, got quite excited about participating in that. And we had a, uh, a global meeting for Foreign Service. That session on the field-first clustering was one of the more heavily attended and participated in. And you think it's kind of a pretty dry subject, but because people could see this is a way to get what they yeah. need in an affordable and supportable way, there was a lot of enthusiasm. For so that. you segmented your clients, let's say, in, in 10, 12 different client mm -hmm. segments that had different needs and, and, and um, for support and systems and so on. Because, I mean, Department of State has a huge IT budget. Well, it's a two and a half billion dollars in, in that order of magnitude, if I'm not mistaken. So, so how do you organize then IT and, and, and digital itself? How do, you, how do you spend that money? So uh, this is the yin and yang of decentralized mm -hmm. and centralized. And over my career, I've seen companies go back and forth between those approaches. And they solve some problems, but they create mm -hmm. new ones. You know, I've come to believe strongly the optimal model in any organization that has more than one function, that has multiple lines of business, multiple bureaus or purposes, needs to be both decentralized and centralized. And so what we did at the Department of State, and we did at Johnson & Johnson, is we said, what is, where does being different make a difference? And I jokingly started with the IT global team and said, do you need your own kind of electricity? No. 
Do you need your own network transport protocol? No. Do you need your own? And so we went up the stack and at some point it does no. make a difference. And so we let the things that make a difference, difference be different and we focused on getting economies of scale, efficiency, speed on those things that are shared. And by the way, they don't need to be shared by everybody. If half the world wants a particular technology, that's still a pretty big client base, right? It's worth giving them that. And so maybe you have two or three different flavors. So the key was really implementing the technology that, that met the needs, that met a di made a difference. And once our business partners and our IT colleagues realized we weren't going to force them down a path of standardization when it didn't help them, then they became more open to the conversation, well, what can I use? And so we organized by having digital centers of excellence, creating platforms, rolling out things like ServiceNow and Salesforce.com and saying, here's something you can start with, but you can build a layer on top of that that has your unique needs. But you should also know that the bureau next door has already built some of those things and you might want to start with them. So think about instead of starting from scratch, uh, a bureau perf uh, executing a strategy in Africa might find two thirds of what they need already built in the yeah. department. And they would add that critical third of unique capabilities. In Africa, it may be, you can't be always synchronized. You have to be able to work remotely and then sync up when the network allows you to transfer that amount of data. That's a relatively small change on a big base of capabilities. And now all of a sudden, it's a huge strategic advantage to be part of this greater collection. It's not a burden where you're given things that you don't actually want to use. And that changed the nature of the dialogue in the department. Okay, overall. so that's how you decide on centralized, decentralized. What, what's the strategy there on, on, on sourcing? And how, how many people work in IT? And are they, are they all insourced? Or are you, you work with outsourcing companies as well? Yeah, we work uh -huh. with both. So uh, again, I have a bias that if you're doing something that is mission critical to your organization, to your business, you're better off if you have employees mm -hmm. doing it, at least running it, because that's the thing that you need to do better than your, your competition. If it's closing the books, maybe being as good as everyone else mm -hmm. is fine. If it's rendering engineering diagrams for medical devices, uh, if it's the ability to search through the intellectual property you already have and quickly find matches to emerging needs that you're seeing in trauma care, uh, for example, being better at that <laughs> than your competition is, yeah. is good. It's, it's worth doing. And if you have people who are as passionate about your purpose as your business employees who are going to have a career at your company like J&J &J and are going to get better and better and better, and find value there, that's how you're gonna differentiate mm -hmm. yourself. So understanding is, what is, you know, to use technical terms, what is your value stream management strategy? What, why do your customers buy your products? What makes you successful out in the world if you're the Department of State? And doubling down on those differentiating capabilities, and yes, maybe you don't have the lowest unit cost, but you have the most effective capability, and being effective beats being efficient if it's a critical capability. So sorting that out, getting procurement aligned with that because they wanna, they wanna you know, have one flavor of everything because that's how you get the lowest price. But really it's not just the lowest price, 
It's the most effective deployment at the most mm -hmm. efficient cost, but effective first, efficient second. Okay. Stuart, you've been CIO in several organizations. So, so let's reflect mm -hmm. a little bit on what is fundamentally the role of a CIO nowadays? And, and, and how do you start when you arrive in a new position? How do you start as a, 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 as, as a new CIO in a company? That's a great question and that's evolved. If you'd asked me at the beginning of my career, I would have said being a CIO is doing important things and getting no credit for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had business colleagues who asked me, if you could be something else than a CIO, why wouldn't you? And it really, uh, didn't the reputation didn't reflect the, the critical mm -hmm. value. And, and we, we knew that, but we weren't getting credit. That's changed quite a bit. So the first thing I do when I show up is making sure that I have as intimate a knowledge of the business as I possibly mm -hmm. can. Uh, I would uh, go out and meet with customers, which CIOs previous to my arrival didn't, off, didn't mm -hmm. always do. Um, they, weren't, they weren't offered the opportunity to do it, so I would ask for it. Um, I even uh, rode with a pharmaceutical representative in Belgium uh, to get a feeling for what it was like there. I didn't understand <laughs> any of the detail. Or, or the language. But I, I did or understand the, the language, maybe. <laughs> Yes, uh, the language. But I did understand the cadence and the no. process and what, what the challenges no. were. And my sales rep would you know, brief me in English after the sales cost the sales call so that when I went back into headquarters, I could talk about customers. Mm -hmm. I could talk about business strategy. Uh, I met with people who are taking orders in call centers and said, what's hard to do that shouldn't be hard to do. And within two, three, four months, uh, I made it clear that I was going to start with business value and then look at technology strategy. I wasn't going to start with technology strategy and then try to find no. a home for it. So I always try to show up as a business leader who happened to be running IT rather than an IT leader that just happened to be in this particular yeah. company. And then the more successful I was at connecting as a business leader, not just a technology leader, the faster uh, we made progress and the more we got trust and, and budget support and we, the faster okay. we made progress. So as fast as possible understanding the business. And then I can imagine also very quickly understanding where are the current frustrations in the business, right? Yeah, problems yep. first. And so uh, I, I uh, have long done this thing uh, that I call skip level meetings. It had various names. I would meet with business and IT people with no management in the mm -hmm. room. So individual contributors, frontline supervisors, and you think that might be intimidating to have the CIO sit down with 10, 15, 20 people. But in a very short period of time, I heard more <laughs> things that we could do better <laughs> you know, in that hour than I heard mm -hmm. in a week without doing that. And so I could anchor what I was doing and the actual pain points within the IT organization, the actual pain points of the business. And then when people saw that I was going to focus on things that really might make a difference, well, they might suspend their di mm -hmm. disbelief. The thing that I heard when I first arrived, every job that I've had coming in as a new CIO is, well, this is my sixth CIO. I survived all the others. I'll survive this one. And my question is, why would you want to just survive? Mm -hmm. Why not take advantage of the new person there and get what you no. need done to make your job more enjoyable, to make yourself more productive and to advance the purpose of the company 
in the way that you obviously care enough about to yeah. be here for 10, 20, 30 years. And making that connection, okay. I think, is critical. Now, a top CIO needs to be a, a great manager. Let's talk about that a bit. So, so what, what's your management style? How do you make your team successful? I think, you know, uh, it's a little bit of a cliche, but I try to lead from mm -hmm. behind. I will be the face of certain projects, particularly if they're mm -hmm. high risk and they're enterprise. But as much as possible, I look for my direct reports and their teams to be the, the face of change, the face of innovation, the face of improvement. And then my goal is to make sure they're the right person for that job but then to be an absolute unwavering support for them personally so that their push for innovation doesn't feel like a personal mm -hmm. career risk. Most people say that company, big companies can be risk averse. I disagree completely. They're not business risk averse. They're personal yeah. risk averse. And why shouldn't they be? If I've been here 20, 25 years and I'm an executive director and I'm supporting my family and my kids are maybe in college, What's the last thing I'm going to do? The last thing I'm going to do is put that all at risk for something that's uncertain. So people don't hate change. They hate uncertainty. And if we can take uncertainty out as much as possible, that by being part of innovation, they're not taking on any mm -hmm. career risk. They're yep. safe from a career perspective. Matter of fact, they're enhancing their careers. And they have to really believe it. And you have to really live into that. Then it's amazing what someone who's been around for even a long time can come up with in terms of innovation. So knowing I'm there, and if something goes wrong, the worse it is, the higher up the explainer is. So when we had an SAP implementation failure at Johnson & Johnson, I did the explaining. I didn't put anyone on, you know, no. on the spot, didn't bring them in to have to explain themselves. I got into the weeds, I explained it, and I explained what we're gonna do because I didn't want people to be afraid of trying in the future. And, you know, I had the most secure position to do that. And if someone wanted to, you know, fire the CIO because they explained what went wrong with SAP, well, it's time that I moved away anyway. I mean, that's, you know, <laughs> but getting that level of trust in the organization, identifying the first movers and early adopters and giving them the license to move ahead, identifying what's going to bring the rest, the majority of people along could be fear of missing out on an opportunity. It could be security that all their colleagues and friends are doing something. And then knowing that there's a laggard group that hasn't liked any change in technology since 1996, they're never going to get on board. You got you to find out a way to either move yep. them on or you know, they're, they're just part of the landscape. And maybe they're going to work on legacy systems and maybe they're invaluable for doing that. But don't feel bad that they're not part of the change agenda. They're just not okay. going to do that. And that's okay. So, Stuart, I mean, you learned a lot how to manage big, big teams and big corporates. Have you codified that learning in, in, in like operating principles? I mean, tell us, tell us your, your best practices for that. Yeah, certainly. And, and I've learned that simpler mm -hmm. is better. Uh, but but also being you know clear and specific and I I've refined these over time, but I can tell you they were just as useful in the Department of State as they were at Johnson and Johnson and CVS and mm -hmm. other places. And the first principle uh, I referred to is absolute business alignment, mm -hmm. and in government it's absolute mission alignment because it, you know they're not in business, and it means that we know the business value and purpose 
behind everything we do in technology. It doesn't matter how deep in the infrastructure. And I use the example of someone making a, a firewall change to enable connectivity to a customer. If it's just a list of mechanical network changes and they have a list of 12 things and they've got 10 of them done, it's Friday at five o'clock, they'll go home because it's just a list and there'll be another list on Monday and they should go home. It's five o'clock, it's a Friday. But if they know the purpose, if they know that 11th item is enabling connectivity to a hospital to better support trauma surgery, or that 12th item is a better connection to uh, you know, a government agency that we're trying to interact with to influence foreign policy, they might stay. Matter of fact, they're likely to stay because that's important. So if I had 10 things that I do during a day and I got 12, I just increased productivity 20%. If I have 1,000 people, I just created 200 FTEs worth of capacity I didn't have before that uh, I didn't pay anything more. And matter of fact, they're motivated. They created the capacity. I didn't create the capacity. And what's more, if they know the purpose, they might say, wait a minute, we're already connected to that foreign government agency. We already have that connection. I don't need to open up another firewall port. I can use the secure one we have today. Ah, that's innovation. That's productivity. They can't do that if they don't know the business purpose. So absolute business alignment. Everyone deserves to know why they're doing the work they're doing. It's what motivates people It what unleashes creativity. The second mm -hmm. corollary to that is radical transparency. I always called it radical transparency. When I got to the government, I thought the word <laughs> radical may have overtones that I'm not interested in, but they, they forgave me for that. And that's if it's important to do, it's important to measure, and it's important that everyone can see your work mm -hmm. and your progress. And it's a little bit of a culture shift to try to get people comfortable with transparency because it hasn't always been rewarding for them in the past. But if you can convince people that they should show their progress in a project, they should show their reliability rates, that once that's out there, now it's all our problem. They can't be blamed. I know about it. If I want to do something about it, I'll do something about it. But they can go home and sleep at night because everyone knows the status of what they're doing. And by showing actual progress, we can, in management particularly, quickly identify where we want to add more resources. So I like to see a project manager whose project is green and they're going to make it yellow, and they couldn't be more excited to do that. And the reason they couldn't be more excited is because the project's been struggling and now it's hit whatever criteria makes it yellow, and they know they're going to get help. They're not going to get blame, they're going to get help. Because if you have a sufficiently aggressive portfolio, some projects are going to go yellow. Some projects are going to get red. That's not a bad thing as long as you, you know it and you can do something about it. So that transparency and business alignment makes sure you're working on the right things and you're getting the support you need. And the two others that help support those are innovation, continuous mm -hmm. innovation, and also big innovation. Once in a while, you'll come up with something that's breakthrough. And technology has provided us with a platform in the last few years, whether it's machine learning, big data, et cetera. But constant improvement should be part of the expectation of everybody. It makes jobs more rewarding. And the fourth one is integrity. You have to mean what you say, say what mm -hmm. you mean, and have the courage to be transparent and support what you're doing. Have the integrity of yourself as a person your systems, et cetera. So I make the integrity principle carry a lot of water, <laughs> but it's it's really in support of the, the first two primary okay. principles. Okay, so that are your operating principles. Um, 
Let's talk a bit more about your leadership and your leadership style. And maybe we can take it from, well, what, what do you think the people that work close with you in the different companies where you were the, the, the head of IT, what do you think that will say about, about you and, and about your leadership style? It really depends on where they're coming from. Um, I would hope all of them would say that I'm a leader they can absolutely mm -hmm. trust. That whatever happens, you know, I have their back and I support what they're doing. And so they don't have to worry about their boss. But I can tell you, it's different based on personality type. So I think the journey is as important as the destination. And that to really advance a culture and really advance a company's capability, they have to be part of the journey. Otherwise, it disappears when mm -hmm. you leave. And so there are people who are, by nature, command and control. And they just want me to make a decision. And they might say, it's frustrating that he tries to bring everyone along. I just wish he knows what the right answer is. I wish mm -hmm. he'd just do it. And so my job with them is to explain that I might know the right answer. I might think I know the right answer and be wrong. But regardless, the answer will be better and will be better established to the extent that we, we bring everyone mm -hmm. along. Um, there are people who are not comfortable with transparency. And they might say, I don't get why I just can't do what I need to do. Why do I have to tell everybody about it? And they have to be brought along that this is actually in their best interest. It's not just my principle. And so I would say, you know, first and foremost, trust. Um, sometimes he, we don't understand what the heck he's saying. <laughs> it gets too abstract. But I always feel comfortable asking questions and being able to get answers to my questions in a safe space. And so I hope at the final end of the takeaway, I'm part of a team that works together and that I trust my boss okay. and my leader. Now, Stuart, you were so good to, um, uh, to send us your MBTI, your personality uh, profile. Mm -hmm. and, and we know it's not necessarily 100% scientific, but still, it's, it's an interesting way to, uh, to talk about your personality. Uh, and, and you share that your personality type is INFP. Uh, and, and an INFP, mm -hmm. a mediator, is someone who possesses uh, an introverted, intuitive feeling and prospecting uh, personality traits. And these are typically rare personality types that tend to be quiet, open-minded, imaginative, and, and they apply caring and creative approach to everything they do. Does that sound right to you, for you? Yeah, it, it's approximately right. Um, I think, you know, whether it's by training uh, or my experiences, I've become an outgoing mm -hmm. introvert. Um, I actually look forward to meeting new people. Um, I'm quite social, but I do need my time to recharge, to read, to mm -hmm. think, to plan. So I said on the intuitive part, I, I am a pattern recognizer yep. and I've had to learn to go back and connect the dots for people that like more linear mm -hmm. progress. Uh, I'm married to someone who's more linear and I'll say something out of the blue and she'll look at me like I have three heads. <laughs> what are you talking about? And I had to go back and say, oh, remember when you said this? Well, then I thought that and then I thought this and now I ended up, that's what I said out loud. Yeah, I know it makes yep. no sense. And so, you know, th those two things together I've had to use them as strengths, or I have the opportunity to use them as strengths, but I'll also balance mm -hmm. them because they also contain their own okay. weaknesses. And, and on the feeling and thinking side, the rational, the emotional side, where, where do you stand there? That, that's, 
That's also been uh, more mm-hmm. evolved because I, I used to be an INTJ mm-hmm. when you tested me early <laughs> on 20 years ago. Um, and I think it's reflected that I've, I've become more and more aware that it's, it's the people, mm-hmm. stupid. Um, you know, Clinton had the, that bumper <laughs> sticker said it's the economy, stupid. I have an equivalent one that says it's the people, stupid. When I started being an analytical person, I thought, ah, just get the right data and metrics, the right models, show people uh, how they're doing, show them where they should aim, and you're, you're yeah. in great shape. And that helps, but it doesn't yeah. do it. And I was puzzled. And so then I ended up uh, working with uh, General Electric as a client, and they made you do Lean Six Sigma. So I learned Lean Six Sigma, and I said, aha, if you have the data and you have the right process and you put those things together, then you're going to have a wonderful company. And that helps, but it doesn't do it. And finally, I realized if you don't change the hearts Mm -hmm. and minds, if you're not connecting with people emotionally, they may do what you say, but it's not theirs, and they're not going to own it. And they're not going to embrace it. So, you know, all those things are true. It's great to have data analytics. It's great to understand your process, to understand your value to your customers. But at the end of the day, do the people you work with want to do the things you think they need to do? Do they own it? Do they care about it? And so that that more feeling perceiving aspect, I found to be more valuable as a leader, especially later in my career, where the technology is not too hard. Technology is easy. People are hard. And the better I was at connecting with the people, you know, the better I did. And I don't claim certainly to have perfected it. I, I did get, I have gotten better, but I'm still learning. I'm still learning how to connect and influence uh, and relate to people uh, in what I'm doing today. So people, INFPs, mediators, the typical strengths are that they are empathetic, generous, open-minded, creative, passionate, idealistic. Which one feels most close to you of these of these strengths uh, idealistic mm-hmm. hard for me to understand why everyone doesn't want to do absolutely the right mm-hmm. thing <laughs> all the time uh, and you know I, I can trace back all the challenges I've had in life in work and career to being overly mm-hmm. idealistic uh, having expectations about what we're doing and why we were doing it and I had to learn, and actually a good friend pointed this out to me, that I had an arc that I went through when I joined a new company. When I first got there, couldn't be a better place. Everyone's <laughs> terrific. Everyone wants to do the right thing. This is the place that you know I should have joined long ago. I'll be here forever. And then reality sets in, right? You know, people are people. Culture is culture. And I go through a trough of disillusionment. <laughs> And I learned to stay long enough to come back in and say, no, there are wonderful things about the companies that I've mm-hmm. worked for. Wonderful leadership, wonderful cultures, wonderful purposes. And yeah, there's some people who don't seem to want to advance the company the same way yeah. I do. They're not bad people. They're just different. And uh, not to take it so personally and emotionally. And so idealistic, very personal, very passionate about that idealism had to learn a little bit of uh, pragmatism along the way and to manage my own expectations for myself okay, and others. Great. Now, people with your personality type, their, their potential weaknesses are that they can be unrealistic, self-isolating. They can be unfocused, emotionally vul- vulnerable, desperate to please, or self-critical. Which ones do you recognize and, and how did you develop that? How do you overcome that uh, weakness? 
Uh, I would say uh, self-critical mm-hmm. is a okay. big one. Um, if if there was if I'd done something mostly right, but there was something I could have done better and I didn't do it, it would bother okay. me. Uh, and, and I still have that to this day. I look back at some of the transformations, and I have to consciously remind myself, you know. Uh, you had, we ended up moving 90% of computing workloads to the cloud at mm-hmm. J&J. So we didn't get 100%. <laughs> you know, that, that's still pretty good, right? And it, it, it created a platform for them to be able to pivot to COVID and, and other things. And so, you know, definitely this, the self-critical, I'd say the emotionally vulnerable. Uh, I, I am maybe overly empathetic. I can feel your pain. And I had to learn to stay in the moment where people were mm-hmm. angry and stay there and work through it. Whereas initially I found it just too visceral. It was just too intense and uh, I avoided it. Um, and I had to learn, nope, got to sit in it. You got to stew in it. You, you know, you work through it. It'll come out all right mm-hmm. in the end. And I think that was one of the key, key learnings for me. And to use my empathy to connect but also, but not let it be a deterrent to really facing some strong emotions in the people I work with. Let's talk a bit about uh, your core values. I mean, what, what is it that you're driven by, the values? And maybe, I mean, you shared that you have four children. Uh, uh, what is yep. it, twin boys and two girls? And, uh, and so yes. what are the values that you have passed on to your children? I, I think one of the key ones is authenticity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, always being self-aware and being yourself, um, not trying to be something you're not. Uh, I love the, the Buddhist saying that desire is the root of all suffering. And for many people, certainly for me, desire that things are other than they are, desire to be someone you're not is, is a source mm-hmm. of pain, right? You know, um, you know I, I, I'm never going to be a shampoo model at this point. <laughs> Um, that's okay. Uh, wanting to not embracing that, wanting to be something else is mm-hmm. painful. So going through the process of really being self-aware, who am I really good, bad, ugly, indifferent, and being able to accept that. And then if there are things that I want to be that are different to work toward them, but first accepting what I am and then taking that honesty about oneself and bringing that to every relationship you have, not being inconsiderate, mm-hmm. you know, uh, matter of fact, being more considerate because you're aware of what, what other people's values, uh, but being an authentic person, being an authentic leader. And I think people have a sixth sense about authenticity. They can tell somehow that you're faking it and they may not be able to figure out why or where, but they can sense it. And that erodes trust, and that erodes some of the most basic human connections we can make with people. And so that's a big part of the balance. Now, Stuart, it's clear that you're very passionate about, about leading um, successful teams, mm-hmm. making a change in, in big organizations. What are your passions outside of, of, of the, the, the workspace? Um, the, the, what is it that, that drives you in your personal life? I, I have too many. <laughs> that's my problem. Uh, at one point in my uh, growing up, I was going to be a professional musician, and I still play the trumpet. trumpet. Wow! Um, I used to. I started out playing classical, um, and now I play jazz because you can get away with <laughs> lack of practice, and, and and people can't always tell. 
Um, but, you know, so music is a big part of my life. I listen mm -hmm. to music. Uh, I play music. My, my wife uh, was a gifted soprano soloist, uh, you know, through much of her adult life. And so music is a, is a very important part of it. History. Uh, I have an endless interest in history. That's one of the reasons I've always liked to live in old <laughs> buildings and old houses. The idea that I'm in a house uh, in, that was on a map that George Washington used when he retreated from New York uh, in a home we had in New Jersey. It was built in the 1720s. Uh, you know, I, uh, I, I mm -hmm. love that. Uh, I love experiences, traveling and all those things. So my problem is getting a little more organized and doing, doing more of what I want to do, maybe in a more focused way. But all those things, I think, uh, are part of who I am and part of uh, what I bring you know, to any role that I have. When I said that people may say about me, I don't understand what he just said. It may be that I'm relating a piece of etymology and history that helps explain the origin of a term yeah. we use. Some people are mildly interested. Some people couldn't care less. But I find that very fascinating. Now, Stuart, you built... I mean, a big career, and, and so you're very successful. What would, you, what would you say is the best thing that has ever happened to you in your life? Not in my, it's not in my career. It's really having the four children. Um, and we had two mm -hmm. girls, 18 months apart, and then we, surprise, had uh, two boys. Uh, and so we had four children in three years, and that created both a little bit of uh, career pressure. I had to take some risks because... You know, it's more expensive to have a family of four yep. than of two, uh, or family of six than of four. Um, but, you know, it's both humbling. Uh, it, it advanced my awareness of myself, and my four children couldn't be more mm -hmm. different in their personalities, their abilities, their perspectives, you know, whether shy or outgoing, analytical or creative, uh, whether they like the straight and narrow or they like a kind of wild, wild, wide open life mm -hmm. and career, all different, all great, um, and uh, all important for me to support. Um, and so I'd say that's the single biggest thing, not unrelated to my career, because I wanted to be able to provide them with the opportunities yeah. that they that would benefit them. But uh, that's really the, the number. So one. you're seriously blessed in your life, uh, Stuart. But I can imagine yes. that also you had your your problems and and your traumas and so on. So. So are you willing to share what's maybe one of the worst things that have ever happened to you? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. It is personal. Uh, I said I had twin boys. We were actually expecting triplets. Okay. And we lost a baby at seven months. Um, you know, one we had named that, you know, was viable. And one of the hardest moments was going home from the hospital and, and going into the room with three cribs and disassembling one of them. Uh, so there wouldn't be that reminder for my wife when we mm -hmm. came back. And, and, it, and it defined mixed emotions because you couldn't completely grieve, right? Because you had two new babies in the, in the yeah. NICU that needed help and care. And, uh, and yet you couldn't be, have unalloyed joy. So it really taught me to have a balanced perspective on life, that there are things that are going to be just unequivocally bad that you can't rationalize, that you have to deal with. But there's so many good things that you have to carry on uh, that uh, you know, that's part of life. And that's probably the most serious and severe moment. But there are setbacks all along life. There are setbacks that are personal, career, and professional. And so you know, one of my 
personal mantras really is this too shall mm -hmm. pass. However you feel now, if you're elated, that too shall pass. If you're unbelievably sad, that will pass. That will get better. Uh, and time is your ally in, in those circumstances. And if you have a crisis at work that feels like the world's coming to the end, that too shall pass. And you can deal with it constructively and you can take a long-term view. And I think that's an important part of leadership as well. Or just being happy in your mm -hmm. job. It's going to be up. It's going to be down. That's life. It means you're alive and you're part of this world. In your career, Stuart, did you have important mentors that you learned from? Or did you have important people that you look up to and, and learn from? And can you maybe mention one or two? I, I've, had, I've had tons of them um, uh, and, and wouldn't have had a career mm -hmm. without them. Uh, I had uh, a gentleman named Pat Miller who hired me to work at Merck. And I was this academic type being hired in a sea of MBAs. And I met him. And first of all, he had a mustache and a goatee when no one did. And he had a PhD, has a PhD in, in neuropsychology from Penn. So he's a bright guy. And I thought, if this guy isn't too academic for Merck, then I certainly am not. But he created an environment of wonder and joy and fearlessness in contributing to the companies. Now, we built statistical models. I built Monte Carlo simulations. We did some really high-end mm -hmm. stuff. But he, he never lost, really, the childlike uh, joy that came from the work that we did. So he was absolutely a critical mentor. Uh, you know, further along, the CEOs I've worked for have all taken the time, uh, whether it's Ted Kelly at Liberty Mutual, who really took every moment of interaction with him to train me of how to be a business executive, not just an IT leader. Uh, whether it was Tom Ryan, the fearless leader of CVS, and Larry Merlo, who recently retired as the CEO, as, as absolutely unequivocally going after the very best results and the very uh, best performance and literally afraid of nothing. And then at uh, Johnson & Johnson working under Sandy Peterson and Alex Gorski, who just continually inspired me and all the people they work with to bring my best self there, to be fearless, to be out there pushing for innovation. And then working under Brian Bolotow, who the, was the undersecretary for management, um, a consummate leader who lived the West Point servant leader uh, model, who showed up with zero ego, but tremendous intelligence and enthusiasm. I couldn't have done any of the things that I've done in my career if I hadn't worked for people like that. And I sought out those leaders. At the end of the day, it's not the company or organization you go to work for, it's the person you go to work for. And I've been very fortunate for working with the very best people, I think, available in American business, and then lastly okay. in government. Now let's throw in a sneaky question here, uh, Stuart, if you don't mind. I mean, it's one of my favorite questions in these um, interviews, and that is, you've been successful in business, but I'm sure you also had um, your failures. So. And it's important that we learn from them. That's, that's what I want to focus on. So, so could you describe what was your most brilliant failure in business and what did you learn from it? Oh, I have so many to <laughs> choose from. <laughs> Let me pick one that was early in my career. I, I just moved up into executive leadership. I was a vice president at Merck mm -hmm. Medco and, and I became responsible for a service we provided to clients. 
And it was, they would ask for a report and then someone would go off and it was, this was the mainframe days. They'd code something in COBOL. And then, you know, 21 days <laughs> later, we're supposed to give them a report, except we were always late and the clients were very frustrated. And I said, oh, this is a wonderful opportunity to apply lean principles, uh, to be able to restructure the workflow. And we set it up and we created uh, different work streams with simple and complex. And uh, the, you know, the, the short version of the story is every report got delivered ahead of 21 days, every single one. And we were moving down to two weeks. And the uh, account management people out there in the field hated it <laughs> and hated me because I was the face of this. And why did they hate it? What they loved doing was calling up their favorite programmer and saying, could you help mm -hmm. me out? Could you uh, do this thing for me the client wants? I know you've got a, a list of things to do, but could you bump this up and get this done? And they had a personal relationship and they felt like they had someone they could go to when they got stuck. We took that away and made everything transparent. So yeah, they could get things expedited, but they had to tell their boss. And if they had to be really expedited, they had to tell their boss's boss, and they didn't yep. want to do that. So I didn't understand the cultural aspects of this. I didn't understand the norms, and I didn't understand the behaviors. So we made a very simple tweak, and we said, you can escalate without having to get your boss's approval, but you only get so many every month. And just to be fair, we're going to create a fast lane for you, <laughs> and we'll quietly get your work done. Oh, now all of a sudden it was brilliant. And we were all brilliant, but I missed the cultural dimension. I missed the people dimension. And I'd like to say I never forgot it about mm -hmm. it again. That would be an exaggeration. But that's what really changed my mind about what works and what doesn't work. And that was a huge operational success and a spectacular personal mm -hmm. failure. Now, Stuart, you come across as somebody very wise and very optimistic. But I'm sure that, mm -hmm. I mean, what's the... What is it that you fear most in your life? I think I fear not knowing. I, I, have fear, I fear being wrong and not knowing mm -hmm. I'm wrong. And that's one of the things I've learned to tell my team. I love finding out I'm wrong as quickly as possible. Not that I like being wrong, but the alternative is being wrong and not knowing it as quickly as possible. And this idea that I'm sharing beliefs and ideas and strategies and the people listening are thinking this guy doesn't have a clue that that really bothers mm -hmm. me so i i fear not being connected i fear not knowing i fear not understanding and i'm very sensitive to you know to that and so i spend a lot of time trying to learn and connect and understand people at a deeper level i'm probably more in the weeds in understanding than most people but I think I stay at a pretty high level in terms of strategy and letting people do what they, they do best. Uh, I've been blessed with great direct reports, some of whom have followed me from company to company, and they have complementary skills that are very different no. from mine. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Steve Wren, is a former Marine. He's afraid of nothing, <laughs> and he will take the hill. But as he'll tell you, it may be the wrong hill. So... He's the person that I turn over and say, look, this is what we got to get done. We've got a crisis where we have to recover from unreliability in our systems. Tell me what you need and go do it. And he can do that better than I ever could in a million years. But I think I'm better at providing the environment and the yeah. umbrella 
of doing that than many other people. So it's that complementary skill uh, that you bring to the table. And the better I am at being able to bring people who are different than I am into the mix and really supporting them, even though they show up differently than I do, the more successful the organization has been. So Stuart, thank you so much for sharing all your experience, your visions, your, 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 your view on, uh, on things. Um, let's finish up with the question, what is the advice that you would give to, to, to young people that are watching the, your, this interview and that have the ambition to become as successful as a CIO and in big organizations as, uh, as you are? What's, what's your key advice that you would give these people? I think there's one thing that's really critical is being open to new opportunities as they arise and not being overly set on the path you think you're mm -hmm. going to take. Uh, I met with uh, a physician who had been trained at Harvard, uh, emergency room physician, brilliant guy. His passion is data and analytics. And he works in a very large hospital system helping IT uh, and information management advance the care of patients for the whole hospital. Now, if you had asked him when he was a resident, he never would have said he was going to go into IT. He would have laughed at that. But he was open to it. And if I detect a theme in people who have had the most interesting careers is they're not capricious in their decisions, but they're always open to considering a different direction than they may have thought. If you'd asked me in graduate school, I was going to be a professor and I was going to invent new science and new technology. Uh, if you'd asked me in marketing, I was going to be a marketing leader and, and help bring uh, better adoption of pharmaceutical innovation to physicians worldwide. And I could go through every job and tell you what I thought I was going to do. But to the extent that I was offered the opportunity to do something that I thought I could uniquely contribute to, that I knew I was going to have an interest in, and would have an impact, the fact that it was different than what I thought my career path was, wasn't an impediment mm -hmm. ultimately. It wasn't that I didn't second guess occasionally, but I would give the advice, look for that next opportunity where you create value and where you can have a passion, even if it's not on whatever career path you set out mm -hmm. for yourself. Don't have the 10 year plan. You can have a 10-year plan, but in year two, you might go in a completely different direction. And that might be the very thing that gives you the successful career that you didn't know you were going to okay, have. Okay, super. And on that note, Stuart, thank you so much for your time, for sharing My pleasure. for sharing all your ideas. It, uh, it was uh, so bad that I couldn't come over to your beautiful town and that we could sit together. But I'm sure that we will meet in the, in the near future. I look forward to that. Maybe in Belgium.